that was such a poignant reminder. If at the heart of what we do, um, that evangelism is not the case, then we are writing our own obituary in a sense. And so today we want to look at the book of Revelation, which is the last place in the world we probably all want to go. Um, but we're going to look in the book of Revelation today and look at what the church is and how the church survives. Now, as we've been looking and walking through and talking about the church, we have to talk about why churches die. Now, this sermon actually just so happens to fall on the very same Sunday that the church that we'll be moving into um, celebrated their 100th year anniversary. And so there is this momentous occasion, right, where you say, wow, a church has existed for 100 years, which is to the glory of God, but in the same vein, that church is passing on a legacy to another church who they want to continue the work that they have done. Look, nobody wants to talk about why churches die. I'm a pastor, all right? I don't want to talk about why churches die. There is something eerie about it. Sometimes you read things or you have a conversation or you read an article that talks about why churches die and you see elements of that in your own church. And if I'm being honest, when, when you talk about this, like it just doesn't feel great. Because here, there are symptoms of these things that we're going to read about today in every single church. And in reality, unless we assess ourselves and actually see that this is who we could become, like that video said, we are actually writing our final chapter as well. So today, the church that we're looking at is going to be interesting. It is a church that, in terms of theology, they were good. In terms of rejecting false teachers, they're good. They were good on those things in principles, but they were failing in practice. And so the title of our sermon today is Obituary of the Church, A Love Lost. If a man says that he is a husband but that he is often out with his friends more than he is at home, that he talks more to the television than he does to his wife, that he was more concerned about how his team performed than his spouse's happiness. Yes, he is a husband in principle, but we would all agree that he's failing in practice. Y'all, it is easy for us to be a church in principle, but fail in practice. And we need to know how we come together and we can all be guilty of that. I want to look at what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus to acknowledge their service, but also admonish them about what they lost along the way. Look at me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at the very first verse. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, the word, God. Let us consider this both an encouragement today, but also let us consider this a warning. Let us see how easily we can all drift into this place of formality and going through the motions, God. Let us know what it means to really be your church. Let us know what it means to epitomize that, not just as a collective body, but each individual member. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know anytime, you know, we even mention Revelation, people shudder, right? It is hard, first of all, to interpret anything from Revelation. And then when you do interpret it, when you start actually looking at some of the things that it says, it can get a little scary. But I want us to walk through this today together. John, the last living apostle that we have, is being given this revelation. And as it happens, Jesus addresses this church in Ephesus. And I want you to know one thing about Ephesus is that this is a real church. Okay? This is one of those things people think, oh, is that metaphorical? Is that symbolic? No. The church at Ephesus is a real church. It is not metaphorical. It's the same church that Paul worked with and established and encouraged Timothy in as he pastored. So this church, by the way, is still around. Paul is no longer living, but the church still is. Now, he addressed the letter to their angel. And this is one of those, if you've ever been in like a traditional uh, black church setting, you said to the angel of this house. Let me just break some news to you. The angel of the house was not the pastor of the church. This was just a reference in a spiritual sense that for the churches, God had given them an angel to watch over those individual and particular churches. Now, he also mentions that they walk among the seven golden lampstands. Again, this is weird language, but this is also a reference that Israel had before in the Old Testament where they were called to be the lampstand of God. And it says that Jesus walks among them, meaning that he is aware of who these churches really are. Now, this awareness leads him to commend the church first. Now, this is one of those things they teach you in the professional world. I used to get this, especially when I worked in the bank, you used to get an evaluation, right? And they would always start with something good. That was before they got to the bad stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, you've shown up well, you know, you've performed well, but you got some bad things that we need to address. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He starts to commend them for the things that they had done right, some positives. Now, what are those? They're important. He says, you have worked hard. You have endured with patience. You have called out wrongdoing. You have disproven false apostles. And you have not grown weary. Man, when you hear this and you say, oh, well, Ephesus, you know, we, we hit all the marks. We're doing pretty well. We're theologically sound. We call out all falsehoods. 
were killing this evaluation. And they were, but they were only killing it in principle. In principle, they were a healthy church, but you see, it is not healthy only to be a good, healthy church in principle. Now, Jesus is saying this to them, but it is remarkably similar to what he actually says to the woman at the well. When he meets with her and he starts talking about where the Jews worship, and she says, and the Samaritans, they worship here. He then says, yeah, but there is a time that is now here that those who worship God must worship him in spirit as practice. Okay. And they must worship him in truth. That's principle. And so he tells the church here, you've been getting it right in the element of truth, but you ain't doing it in the right spirit. You're you're all principle, but no practice. You've abandoned your first love. Now, for you, that may not feel like that's as dramatic or traumatic as a rebuke, but that's a heavy rebuke. What you used to love, you don't love anymore. Now, maybe we don't feel the weight of that, but let's imagine. Instead of you being the person who lost the love, what about you being the recipient of the love that was lost? What if somebody came to you and said, you know, I just don't really love you anymore. That person says, hey, I've been faithful, I know. I fulfill my responsibilities, I know. I've taken care of you. I've gone through the motions. But to be honest, a long time ago, I stopped loving you. I've just been going through the motions. If you were on the other end of that, it would break you. It would anger you. It might even confuse you. How can someone appear so devoted to something, yet be so detached from it emotionally and spiritually? But you know what's even scarier? How could that marriage for that person have felt so fulfilling and God-honoring even though that one person wasn't even in love anymore. How could it have appeared to be so healthy? Because you'd be surprised how much easier it is to be a glorified taskmaster than to have a devoted heart. Whenever a church loses its first love, that is how it dies. Now, that doesn't mean that the population of the church itself dies. In fact, Oftentimes, the quicker they lose that first love, the quicker they get new members. But in terms of how God views them, they're dying. Now, how does this happen more specifically? We really only have one main point for this sermon today, and it's simple. The church forgets its original mission. The church forgets the original mission. I was watching uh, Doug the other day with Elliot, really trying to get him on these 90 cartoons. So we were watching Doug the other day, and on that episode, Doug started off wanting to help his grandmother's business. The business wasn't doing all that well, and so he wanted to make sure that he could help her, and he makes some recommendations, and, and she did it. And as she started to make these small changes the business started to do a little bit better. Well, 
him seeing what a few changes did, he thought, man, if I change just a little bit more, we added a little bit new technology, more people will come, and my grandmother will be even happier. Eventually, more people came, and that worked. He said, well, you know what? We can use even more technology, and even more people will come, and then we'll make more money. So we did that. And the whole idea of what that business was changed. And he said, well, we're really competing with all these other businesses for their money, and it was thriving. But his grandmother was sad that she was no longer the reason he was helping. In fact, she'd become an afterthought. And all this was doing well until a business one day across the street from theirs popped up just like them, and they had newer, fancier technology. They had better lights, better equipment. It went bigger and better. And when their business crumbled, then he remembered his grandmother. Y'all, this is the unfortunate reality for many churches as well. They are planted and start with a core mission, and oftentimes success is the biggest threat to that mission. Because they slowly get pulled away from what was once central to the foundation of the church. Now, how does this happen? Well, it starts on the individual level. People who were once burning with fervor and fire, they start to cool off. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew 24 and 12, he says, and because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. When people read about Jesus saying this, they always think, well, this is what's going to happen. But let me bring some news to you. This is what is happening. Sin in the world and sin in our lives causes our love to grow cold. Let's take a moment and be honest with ourselves. I want you to ask yourself this. Has my love for God grown cold? Listen, we often misdiagnose this and misdiagnose why we feel it. But the first place we need to look before we look anywhere else is inside. Even in relationships, when a person feels themselves falling out of love, they will think, well, they don't satisfy me like they used to. It's dull now. They don't look as good as they used to look. But they never say, how have I stopped loving what used to make me spring up out of bed in the morning? So I want everyone in this room to ask yourself three questions and write them down if you need to. But these need to be asked. These are going to be imperative questions for you, your walk with Christ and the life of our church. Three questions. What did I love? What do I love? What will I love? What did I love? What do I love? And what will I love? Understanding how you answer these three questions will help you understand the direction you may be going in your own life and how the church is going to be headed through you. So the first one, what did I love? Galatians 5 and 7. 
you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, Paul writes in this letter something similar to what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Now, for the Galatians, something had gotten in the way of what they loved, and for them, that was legalism. They started to fall victim to the teachers of Judaizers and said, unless you're you're circumcised, you have no salvation. Unless you are saved by your works, you can't be right. But many people who are part of the church, they run well initially. Many people start off well in the run. They join the church and they're eager to do things and participate in things. They want to share the gospel. They want to witness to the lost. They want to see everybody saved. That is how a lot of people start off. But you know, the answer to what happens to those people is in the Bible. It's like in the parable that Jesus tells of the sower. He says, there were some who heard the word and believed and received it with joy. But then life got hard. They lost their job or a pandemic hit or a tornado ripped the roof off their home church. Some tragedy happened and in the times of testing, they fell away. They had roots, it said. But those roots never quite got in the ground. Then he says there are those who get sown among the thorns. But they get choked out by riches and pleasure in the world and life. And they never quite mature. Now ask yourself this. Do I love what I did love? Do I want to be engulfed by the word? Do I love community and fellowship and soul care like I used to? Does my heart burn today for worship like it used to burn? If not, then my question is the same as Paul for the Galatians. What has gotten in the way? What has gotten in the way? One day I was going to the refrigerator and I was getting some milk for Benjamin. And when I was doing that, Elliot was standing next to me and Elliot loves milk. And he said, "Um, hey, can I have some of that milk that I was giving to Benjamin? And I was like, no, the blue milk is for babies. Well, the next day he was eating like pancakes or waffles or something. And so I gave him milk and he ate all his food, got up and I come back and the milk is full. And I was like, Elliot, why didn't you drink this milk? Why didn't you touch it? And he said, well, I don't want it because milk is for babies. Now, it's funny how one seemingly harmless conversation, one harmless experience, one little misunderstanding can stop us from loving something we used to love. If you know that you love something different now than what you used to love, then you at least have to ask yourself this. What do I love now? What am I loving now? Now, how do we answer that? How do we even measure that? I mean, what is a reliable way to figure out what I love? How can you measure love? It's intangible. 
Well, think about it like this. Love is the difference between how you wake up when you go to school versus how you wake up when it's Christmas morning. It's the difference between hugging your Aunt Mabel and hugging the love of your life. By comparison, everything else is dull. But this thing, this is the thing that brings you life and light in your own life. At the core of who you are, if that thing is not Jesus Christ, then you are misplacing your love. And I know a lot of people will tell you that you are what you eat. But I'm here to tell you, you are what you love. If as a church... We love discipleship and evangelism and accountability and spiritual growth. Then that will be who we are. And that love that we have for Jesus will exude out of us no matter how we do it. But if we love performance, if we love keeping up appearances, the facade, the comfort, the notoriety, the acclaim, then the church and Jesus really becomes our add-on for our own successes in life. Growing up, my grandfather, Jasmine, you know this, my grandfather loved Mercedes cars. Like, that's the only thing he would drive. And everyone knew it because whenever he drove, that was the kind of car he was in. The love in him put him in what he loved. Whatever we love in us will put us wherever we love to be. And so my final question for you, what will you love? When Jesus was getting ready to depart, he has one of the most poignant and thought-provoking conversations with Peter. Remember, Peter, out of fear for his life, denied Jesus three times. He said he didn't know him. Well, Jesus three times later asked him, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes. And he replies to him, feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me, then I can't just be in you. But you have to be in me. And if you are in me, then you're going to love what I love. And Jesus loves his people. He loves us all because he created every single one of us as icons. We mirror his image. Now, we all should realize as believers, the only reason someone is not mirroring that image as well as they should is because that image is broken, fractured, distorted by sin. But if I say I love Jesus, what's the scripture say? But I hate my brother, then I'm a liar. Now, you may think hating your brother means to actively hate them. But hating your brother or sister is seeing someone live in the full effects of their sin, knowing that you have the gospel that could free them from it and say nothing.
No one can put a candle under a bushel and it not blaze the whole room. If the gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are lost. If at the epitome of who we are, we're not about bringing more people into eternity than just our church pews, then we ain't loving folks the way Jesus loves them. That annoying neighbor, family member, co-worker that you have, if what stands in between you and them having a relationship is their sin and you have the remedy for it, why not offer it? People of God, what will we love? I mean us collectively. We are on the cusp of being gifted something unusual, all right? Not only do I think it is a rare occasion for a church to inherit a building, I think it's even rarer that it be our church that would inherit that building. Are we going to use that for our own name, our own purposes, and our own glory or are we going to look out into the world and see the darkness that surrounds it and know that at our little church, with our little group of people, we have the light that the world needs. We don't have to be big. We don't have to have a huge budget. All it takes is individual believers having conversations with individual non-believers and seeing them come into faith. Are we going to say that our very existence hinges on our relationship with Jesus and everything we do will be for him? Or will we just use Jesus as the accessory we put on like a coat in the winter. If you realize that you've lost the love that you once had for God, if your passions have been redirected and your heart misaligned, turn back to him. Set your heart and your affections back on Christ Repent and return back to the love that you have lost. And he tells us that in our text. He says, remember, just remember, remember from where you have fallen. Repent. And it's simple, y'all. He says, just do what you did at the beginning. Just love what you loved at the beginning. And God is going to be faithful to us. And so my admonishment to all of us is if we feel like we've lost that love that we had, that burning fire that once existed in us, let's go back. Now, how do we do that? One, we must be present. We must be present at church. We must long for accountability. We must long for community and fellowship. 
We must long to cultivate that. We must desire the word above anything else. It must dominate who we are and why we exist on our jobs, in our homes, with our family, with our friends. It must be at the core of who we are. We must have strong spiritual disciplines. And we must have a heart that burns for the lost. Set your heart and your affections back to Christ and return to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us out of the book of Revelation today. Lord God, it is so easy for us to think that this is what's going to happen in the future, but Lord, it's happening right now. God, there are so many churches that they live as they die. That they drift from your mission and your purpose and and why the church was established in the first place. God, like the seed that fell among the thorns, sometimes we get caught up with riches and fame and notoriety and acclaim and being well-known or being well-liked, but God, that pulls us away from our purpose. Lord, there are some of us who start well and we participate and we jump in and we join in, but then stuff gets hard again. And instead of running to you, we run away. God, for those of us in this room who are running, let us stop where we are Let us turn back around and let us pursue you. Lord God, there are some of us who are watching or who are in this room who who don't know you at all. Lord, I pray that this be the day that you open their eyes, open their hearts, and realize that none of us, God, is saved because of the horrors of hell. We're saved because of the holiness of Christ. Knowing that on the cross, he stood in our place. He absorbed the wrath that was intended for us because of our sin debt. And if we don't repent and turn and believe the truth, then we will have to endure the wrath of God for all of eternity. But Lord, knowing that that's the case, let us as a church, as a people, burn fervently for the lost. God, let us not just get angry with them. Let us not just get frustrated or annoyed or even pray that bad things happen to them. But God, let us witness to them. Let us share the light and the love of a bleeding Savior who loved us so much that he went to the cross on our behalf. Let us know what our purpose is, God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.